Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to Let's Talk Micro and welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of Let's Talk Micro. If you are a first-time listener, welcome and thank you for choosing Let's Talk Micro. And I definitely invite you to check out the previous episodes. This episode is episode 101, so there are a hundred other episodes for you to choose from. I hope you listen to all of them. With any, you know, from everything from organisms to biochemicals to great guests with topics that are related to the field of microbiology. As always, trying to break it down and explain it as simple as possible. And you can find Let's Talk Micro on all podcast platforms, you know, from Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, to uh, Good Pods. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. So please subscribe download episodes and leave a review if the app allows you to do so you know like apple podcast it lets you do a review that's always helpful and you can find me on social media and instagram tiktok and youtube as let's talk micro on x which was twitter as let's talk micro one and on linkedin as luis plaza you can also email me at let's talk micro at outlook.com if you have any feedback any suggestions you know if you think you might make a good guest Definitely reach out via social media or via email. As always, all suggestions and feedback are welcome and appreciated. And last week I released a short episode. It was like about 10 minutes. And it was just like a preview and some updates. You know, I talk about three upcoming episodes. And so definitely one of them is today's episode. So there are two more episodes that are upcoming. And of course, you know, I'm always w working on more things to bring to you, you know, share more information. But if you haven't checked that episode, go ahead and do so. Well, as you know, pretty much towards the end of season two, we launched the AMR subseries with uh, Dr. Andrea Prinzi as my co-host. And we're going to be talking about AMR. We're going to be breaking down antimicrobials, you know, mechanism of action, intrinsic resistance, you know, how, what can we find on CLSI? You know, how do you, if you get a weird request or an unusual request, you know, what do you do? So we're really breaking antimicrobials down. And the first episode was an overview, you know, like a historical overview. What's the state of things? You know, what's to come in the series? So today's episode, it's about beta-lactams. So we go over beta-lactams. You know, we talked about the mechanism of action. We talked a little bit about the cell wall. We talked about intrinsic resistance, you know, where we find on CLSI M100. We mentioned some examples of beta-lactams. We go over cephalosporins and the generations. So all in all, it was a great episode, a great conversation. And this is some information that especially those of you that work on the bench and accept susceptibilities and perform susceptibility testing this is some really good information to be familiar with. And in this episode, like I said, you know, co-hosting Dr. Andrea Princey, and we had a guest, which his name is Dr. Brian Rowe. And in the episode, Andrea Princey, you know, she introduces him and gives a short bio of what he does. So I'm not going to talk about that. But I definitely, I hope you enjoy this episode. I had a great time doing it. And I'm really grateful that I get to do this and share this information with you. So let's go ahead and listen to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode two of the AMR sub-series. Um, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, uh, there was episode one, which was AMR and overview. You know, we gave a historical overview. We talked about AMR. 
we give an overview of the show. So for this particular series, you know, I have a Dr. Andrea Princi. She's co-hosting with me. And today we actually have a guest. So we said on the overview that we are going to be talking about beta lactams today. So today, with uh, in addition to Dr. Andrea Princi, I have Dr. Brian Rowe. Dr. Princi, how are you? Hi, Luis. I'm doing great. How are you? Hope you had a good weekend. Yeah, I definitely did. Uh, you know, was staying busy and you know, summer, school, wearing many hats, but but overall doing really, really good. So, um, hey, uh, Dr. Rowe, how are you? I'm so good. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to introduce Brian. I, you know, Luis, I've talked to you about this a lot, but I'm super fortunate. One of the things I love the most about my job uh, right now is that I've got this amazing team of both infectious disease pharmacists and clinical microbiologists that work with me. And they're seriously, all of them are so brilliant and, and know so many things about so many things. And so it's awesome that I get to work with them every day. And one of them is Dr. Brian Rowe, who I'm going to introduce right now. Uh, he is an infectious disease pharmacist, and he's also a medical science liaison at BMU with me. His focus is on clinical infectious diseases, although I would argue he has a ton of clinical microbiology knowledge as well. And so it's one reason why I really love working with him. Uh, before joining BMRU, he worked as a clinical pharmacist and antimicrobial steward at the Medical University of South Carolina, where one of his favorite parts of the job was working closely uh, with the clinical microbiology laboratory. He has a PharmD from Northeastern University and is passionate about medical education, patient care, and advancing antimicrobial stewardship practices through clinical research. So welcome, Brian. Is there anything else you would add about yourself or that you want to say? No, just thank you so much again for, for having me. I'm really a humbled to be part of this sub-series. Uh, this, to me, in some ways feels like a bit of a, a peak, a culmination of a lot of the things I've, I've done in my relatively short career so far. At my previous job, the lab was a, a huge part of, of what I did on a day-to-day -day basis. And even in pharmacy school, I got started in infectious diseases by working in a lab that did susceptibility testing on a research use only uh, kind of path. So as I've been in different labs, I, I just want to give a thank you as, as a pharmacist to all the people that I've worked with who have taught me so much, who were always so welcoming to this interdisciplinary approach. I think we overall have done a lot of good for so many patients by leveraging the skills that we each have. Uh, that let us ultimately better provide for our patients. And very briefly, I'll say sort of the career of being a medical laboratory scientist or, or technologist was something I frankly had no idea about before I started residency training. And I think what I now know is that's such a shame. It's such an awesome career that I think has so much impact on patients that many people don't know about. Uh, one of the things that I like to do that I felt like I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis when I was on micro-rounds was I could provide the clinical context for the cultures that the people in the lab were working on. And so I hope that's sort of what we're going to be doing today. That's that's what I hope to take into this and uh, really looking forward to digging into the beta-lactams. Well, you know, definitely uh, welcome again. And it's definitely a pleasure having you. And like you said, uh, Definitely with the medical laboratory sciences, we that's one of the ongoing issues. You know, there are not many people know about it. Uh, I think 
we're making great progress, you know, with social media. And I've seen, you know, programs are going even to like high schools and they're having initiatives for like uh, first year college students. So yeah, not many people know about it. And it's, you know, we have such a great impact on what we do with the patients and microbiology. We work directly with cultures. You know, we do testing, we do susceptibility testing. We put those results out there. And for me at the same time, you know, it's very refreshing and because uh, meeting, you know, what happens on the other side, seeing that, um, knowing about infectious disease physici physicians, you know, about pharmacists, you know, and, and the work they do and how we all work together. And, you know, for that product, which is to benefit the patient. So it's very great. Uh, sometimes, you know, we working on the bench, we don't have a lot of idea. We don't see a lot, not a lot of interaction with pharmacists or ID docs. So on this platform, you know, doing this is great. So I'm very happy to have you here. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So uh, we definitely uh, said that this episode is going to be about beta lactam. So, you know, we as medical lab scientists, we have worked with them, we do susceptibility with them. So, uh, which drugs are part of the beta lactams? Yeah. So, the beta lactam group as a whole is, is ginormous. There are so many different antibiotics that are going to fall under this umbrella of being a beta-lactam. So there are a lot of similarities that, you know, group all of these into that umbrella, but there are some important differences too that I hope we'll, we'll touch on uh, throughout the, the whole podcast. So I'm going to put things into four buckets. So the first bucket are going to be the penicillins. So if you're looking at a new drug and wondering maybe where does this fall, a good cue is if it ends in psyllin, it probably falls into that penicillin group. Number two are the cephalosporins. So I have a trivia question for you two. Uh, do you know why some cephalosporins are spelled with an F and some are spelled with a PH? Hmm. I have no idea. No, I'm not sure either. So, ah, yeah. And I, this was uh, something I had wondered about and just finally looked up as we were getting prepped for this today. But so conventionally, prior to 1975, at least in English, they were spelled with uh, a PH because of the mold that it was originally derived from was spelled that same way. But starting in 1975, all of the generic names are going to be spelled with uh, the letter F. So you can kind of tell uh, how, how recently has a drug been developed from that little cue. And all of those drugs are going to at least sound uh, like they start with the Ceph cue. Uh, so Brian, anything after 75 is going to have an F in it now? Like there will be no more PHs in the name? That's my understanding. At least are getting into brand names, things get funky there for sure. It's really interesting. Uh, the, the third group are the carbapenems. So these are all the ones that are currently available, and even some of the ones that I think are coming up, all are going to end in that penum uh, nomenclature. And then the last group uh, are the monobactams. And this one's pretty easy because there's actually only one, and that's going to be astreonam. So it, it's in the name, uh, beta-lactam. So, but for my sake and, and all of yours, I don't think we should dive into the nitty gritty of the chemical structure of, of what puts them all together. But that beta-lactam ring is the core of what connects all of these together. 
So it, it's that ring that that unites them all. What makes them different is what connects that ring and changes all of their properties. Okay. Um, so as we and before I'm going to ask you about the the mechanism of action and how do they work. But I just wanted to give a little bit of a background to the audience. And there are many mechanisms how drugs work. And we have, you know, like a they target DNA, RNA, protein synthesis, you know, the folic acid and uh, the cell wall synthesis. So for the audience and MLS students, you know, if you're starting to learn about the gram stain, you kind of see you learn a little bit about the cell wall of the organisms. And when you're doing your gram stain and why do some organisms, you know, they stain positive and some stay negative, and you learn about the properties of the cell wall, and in the cell wall, a major component is peptidoglycan, uh, which is, you know, and, and bear with me, it has some alternated units of N-acetylglucosamine and N-acetylmuramic acid, NAG and NAM, and, you know, it is cross-linked, you know, with peptides, and organisms, you know, that are gram-positive, they have a thick layer of peptidoglycan, and they retain that original stain, and organisms that are gram-negative, they have a thinner layer. So at the end, they end up retaining the counterstain, which is pink, your saffronin. So uh, uh, Brian, can you tell us about the mechanism of action of the beta-lactam antibiotics? Yeah, and first, th thank you for that flashback to my college microbiology class. That <laughs> um, was a, a, a nice memory to come back to. So... Ultimately, the, the beta-lactams are going to cause cell lysis, and they're going to do that by inhibiting cell wall synthesis. The, the very smart people that have come before us that name these things fortunately made it pretty easy for us. Uh, so there's a, a group of proteins that are called the penicillin binding proteins. These are essential for uh, bacterial cell wall synthesis. The, all the beta-lactams are going to bind irreversibly to these, and that's going to block the bacteria from making their cell wall, particularly when you have rapidly growing, rapidly multiplying bacteria. This is going to uh, result in cell death. There are a bunch of different penicillin binding proteins, and different bacteria express uh, different volumes of those. The drugs also have different affinities for each of the types of penicillin binding proteins. So on the, the clinical side, when we put together what some people will call the decision triad, where you have kind of a triangle and you have all your patient factors in one corner, you have all the organism factors in another, and then you have uh, all the drug factors in the third corner, you have to try and match everything to, to make the most appropriate decision for your patient. What drug is going to work to bind to your particular bacteria's uh, penicillin binding proteins that it's expressing while still being safe for the patient, while still keeping in mind all the factors about antimicrobial stewardship, uh, making sure that everything aligns really nicely. So these are some of the things that you have to, to start to think about with the mechanism of action for the beta-lactams. Brian, that's really, really helpful. And actually, so while you're talking about this, you, know, you keep bringing up this beta-lactam ring and how it's really the core of the, the these drugs and their structure. And then they've got these side chains that really differentiate them. What is happening when you have an organism that's resistant to a beta-lactam? What mechanism is happening there and, and how might that chemical structure or that beta-lactam ring you're talking about, how does that get 
um, impacted by these mechanisms. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And there are some mechanisms of resistance uh, against the beta-lactams, if you will, that are more universal. Some are more targeted into specific drugs. So if you'll permit me again to to bucket these resistance mechanisms into sort of four groups very, very, very broadly. Um, the, the first kind that might affect uh, beta-lactame antibiotics are first an alteration in the, the binding site. So if you think about the uh, proteins that are on the bacterial cell wall as like a lock and the back and the antibiotic is the key the bacteria changes the lock. The key doesn't fit anymore. And so there's no killing that's going to happen there. So uh, a really nice example of this is in staphylococci, where penicillin binding protein 2 undergoes a conformational change and becomes PDP2A, and it blocks all of our anti-staphylococcal penicillins. The, the next two buckets sort of go hand in hand. Uh, really giving the drug less time inside the cell to to do its job. So uh, there's a decrease in the permeability of the antimicrobial into the cell by blocking the entranceway that it normally takes, or it can, the, the, uh, the bacterial cell can increase how quickly it expels, how quickly it kicks the antibiotic out. It uh, uses an active efflux pump. Both of those are going to decrease the amount of time the antibiotic, uh, again, can do its job. And then the last time, the, the, the last bucket, and this one is, is so fascinating, and there's so many different uh, ways you can think about this, are by actually just breaking the antibiotic down. And this is through something like a beta-lactamase, um, where the antibiotic gets chewed up and spit out and is no longer you know, the same molecule and therefore no longer able to do its job. Um, when I was in training, the lab director that I worked for, the way she taught us about beta-lactamases is she taught us to, like, it was a tree. So you have your, your big trunk, and that's generally speaking beta-lactamases. And then you'd have different branches. Some would be cephalosporinases, some would be metallobeta-lactamases, and as you get further and down, further down into the the smaller branches, and uh, you know down towards where the leaves are going to be, you get really really granular. But there's a lot of interaction between the different beta lactamases, and frankly, between all of these resistance mechanisms. That is such an awesome way of explaining this. I I super appreciate your ability to <laughs> link these very. Uh, challenging concepts to things we're all very familiar with. So the tree is awesome. The locking key is awesome. Thank you for that. Um, I think, I don't know if y'all learned when you were in school, did you learn anything ending in an ACE uh, was going to be an enzyme that was going to chew something up? So, you know, if you hear beta-lactamase, you might think, okay, this is an enzyme that's going to chew up that beta-lactam ring or beta-lactam in some way or another. Um, super helpful, Brian. So while we're thinking about, you're mentioning all these different types of, you know, cephalosporins and and then the enzymes that might chew them up or, or whatever, it gets me thinking about something that I felt like was really challenging to teach when I was in the lab. Um, I felt like a lot of medical laboratory scientists had a hard time wrapping their heads around the different generations of cephalosporins. 
And I think that might be because it's not always clear to us in the lab uh, what the difference is and why a clinician would use one generation over another. Um, but it was a challenge because I think, you know, clinicians would call the lab and say, hey, do you have any first generation cephalosporin options you can give me from your susceptibility testing? And sometimes the microbiologist would be like, oh, hold on, let me look up my list of uh, what a first generation cephalosporin is. So if you have any uh, insight you could give us there as to uh, what the generations are and why it matters to a clinician, uh, what those differences are, that'd be really helpful. Yeah. So first, I guess I'd like to apologize for at, at some point or another being the person that made that call um, to anyone who's ever received one. So uh, please know that a, a lot of the time what, what drives those types of questions are the resources that we have where maybe because things are written fairly generically to facilitate different hospitals' formularies or what may be available at, at different sites, whether your hospital might have one drug in the emergency department and another, you know, at a different phase of care, things are sometimes written generically. And we're looking to the lab to help us understand uh, what might fit best. Second, uh, the answer to this question, like back when I started pharmacy school, uh, was actually a little bit easier to answer. Things with, with new drug development have made it a little bit more complicated, but let's start with, with the, 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 the clear and then dabble a little bit in the gray. So generations one through four of the cephalosporins, I think of them kind of like a seesaw. So on, on one end, you have one, on the other end, you have four. And as your gram-negative activity increases, so uh, your gram-positive activity is going to decrease. So for things like cefepime, a fourth-generation cephalosporin, you're going to have higher gram relatively higher gram-negative activity and lower gram-positive activity. Conversely, on the, the lower ends of the generations, first, for example, you tend to have more gram-positive activity and less gram-negative activity. That's not to say that there is none, just considerably less. When you add in newer drugs, and I'm, I'm doing newer in, in air quotes that you all can't see, but we're talking from like 2010 on, drugs like ceftaroline, uh, ceftolazine, which is given in combination and tested in combination with tazobactan, that's in 2014, Cefidorecol, which became available first in 2020 here in the U.S., kind of buck that trend a little bit. Ceftaroline in particular is sometimes put into like the fifth generation, but it has good gram-positive activity, including MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. And then we're getting a little bit too, too deep into the semantics. But when, when the lab is able to give a clinician data, say like, for example, uh, an organism ID comes out, susceptibilities are, are still being set up, they're still pending, or, or even just a gram stain comes off. That's going to be the time where we're looking to reach for some empiric therapies. So we're going to, again, strike a balance of giving a broad enough agent that's going to cover our most likely culprits. We could give something like a carbapenem, an aminoglycoside, and a drug like vancomycin to everyone with an infection. Um, but as I think has been covered in different facets on this podcast and in, in other areas, uh, we would quickly find out that none of those drugs are going to work anymore. 
And so we have to be much more restrained and, and much more nuanced. So clinicians are able to take and want to take any and all of the microdata that you can give and then combine it with patient-specific factors, things like their age, their weight, their renal function. Uh, what have they been doing from a social history? What uh, antibiotics have they received before? And then put all that together to describe, to decide uh, what drug to actually use. Uh, one really important consideration that I haven't mentioned yet, um, but has been a really, really hot topic in the infectious disease world over the last like eight to 10 years is what allergies does the patient have? And so for the audience, I, I would ask you to think, do you have a, a penicillin allergy? Um, I do listed in my chart. And I, I appreciate that the, the connection from patient allergies to the micro lab like might not be uh, super obvious right off the bat, but this is the way that, that I see it. And I think it affects not only the work that you do, but also, you know, potentially your uh, personal life too. So the way I think this matters and the way it matters to all the patients is that up to 10% of patients uh, that are out in the U.S. report that they have a penicillin allergy. And there are even some reports that if you looked at all the patients that are in your hospitals right now, up to 15% of them are going to have a penicillin allergy listed in their chart. When a patient has a penicillin allergy listed, it makes both patients and providers, clinicians, uncomfortable prescribing any beta-lactam a lot of times. A lot of times, though, these are the drugs of choice for many, many infections. So when you have to pick an alternative, there has been uh, studies that have linked it to increased treatment failures, hospital readmissions, length of stay, overall costs. And then what I think, you know, this whole podcast series talks about increases in resistance and also other nosocomial infections. So we... We, that's a big, big problem. And fortunately, we've learned a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. And the true rate of penicillin allergy is probably like a little closer to 1%. And there can be in that 1% some cross-reactivity with the other beta-lactams, things like our cephalosporins. But it's something that as we get the data from the lab, and this is how I think it connects... So when I know, or when a clinician knows the, the microdata for a specific isolate for a given patient that they have an allergy, it makes a big, big difference. So if there's a patient who they have an isolate and it's susceptible to cefazolin and they have a listed penicillin allergy, it might give me another reason to go talk to that patient and try to see if we can understand better what their allergy is and remove that label if it's not actually appropriate so that they can go on the most narrow therapy possible. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's something that can really impact patients and knowing their susceptibilities is really key to understanding that. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for that. Um, so just as you know, before I moved on to the next question, just, you know, for the audience. So as we're talking about this, so now we're going to be talking about different, you know, uh, classes of drugs down the line. So, the, you know, better lactams, you know, uh, cell wool synthesis. And if you, when you, uh, Brian was talking about the PVP2A, that should ring a bell for the medical lab scientists, right? That's a very popular test that you're doing when you 
are, you know, you have a staph aureus and you're testing to see if it's an MRSA or not. So as we go down the line in the series, there are other drugs that also target cell wall synthesis, but on different pathways. So for here, you know, it has to do with the cross-linking and we talked about the cell wall. Now, for me, um, I want to ask about, let's talk about a little bit about the CLSI and 100. You know, as a, as a medical lab scientist, sometimes, you know, we get those requests. Hey, can you test for this drug? And then, you know, sometimes, you know, people's minds go, well, okay, let's go ahead and do it, or I don't have the drug. What do I do? So the CLSI 100, it's, you know, it's a document that those, you know, that are working in microbiology, testing susceptibilities, and should definitely be familiar with it. Many has a lot of information that helps you how to do your job, and it has the breakpoints. You know, it talks about many things. So I think I'm going to ask some questions about it. So let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit about intrinsic resistance. So on the CLSI 100, you know, you have the appendix B, which is a, you know, it lists the organisms and it tells you, you know, the intrinsic resistance. And it's, it is a great document and you see some, you know, some classic ones that you might be familiar with, you know, like Lepsilin pneumonia, ampicillin, um, Citrobacter, Serratia to the uh, first generation cephalosporins, you know, like uh, Cevazolin. Um, anything else that you want to add about intrinsic resistance? Yeah, I, I think it's a concept that's so important. Um, and we learned about it, or at least I learned about it a little bit differently. Um, you know, when, when I was in school, in pharmacy school, we didn't really learn about the M100. And I'm so fortunate that now I understand how to read that document. There's so much good info in there outside of even just the, the, the testing and the breakpoints, but th there's a lot of implications for the decisions that we otherwise might make. Uh, so I think it's a great resource. Um, one of the like things that when I was training and, and how intrinsic resistance is so important is for drug selection. So when thinking about, for example, what carbapicillin, so we, we, we thought about it from some, you know, as a pharmacist, what from a drug perspective. So like for ertapenem, uh, in the middle of ertapenem is the word ape, A-P-E. Um, and so one of the like mnemonics that we learned was that you shouldn't be using ertapenem for acinetobacter, pseudomonas, or enterococcus. So I think, you know, Appendix B has the, those beautiful tables that showcase from the, the drug level perspective um, and I think it's a great thing to point your clinicians to so that they can also learn what drugs they should stop asking about. Okay. And uh, you also, yeah, as, as, as you mentioned, you know, besides breakpoints, many other things that you can find in the CLSI in 100. So for the med lab scientists, you know, that's the main document for, that's where you're going to see uh, the information for like your enterobacterialis, uh, pseudomonas, your non-fermenters. Enterococcus, strep, and then there's another document, but today we're kind of just sticking to the M100. So one thing that, uh, what about, uh, I want to ask about beta lactams and their relationship. If you have, you know, uh, MRSA, uh, if you have methicillin resistance versus susceptible to methicillin, how does that relate to the cephalosporins? You know, if we get a request and I have seen it there before the audience, how does that relate to it? Yeah, so the way I think about 
the connection between as say a staph aureus as it switches from uh, methicillin sensitive to methicillin resistant is that broadly for most cephalosporins uh, they're also going to lose activity they're they're no longer going to bind uh, there is an exception that i think would be important uh, to keep your eye out for and if people ask about is ceftaroline uh, which relatively uh, maintains its activity even against methicillin-resistant uh, staph. Um, I think that to me is the, is the, the biggest take-home. Um, most of the cephalosporins are going to be affected, but there are uh, some exceptions to the rule. Okay, and then another question will be, so what about uh, enterococcus and, and cephalosporins? Yeah, this one is is so confu uh, confusing might be the wrong word, but I think it falls into the category of uh, the CLSI recommends that testing uh, of cephalosporins for enterococci is not recommended because it doesn't work. Um, what you could get some confusion from your clinicians is because there are some clinical scenarios where uh, cephalosporins are recommended agents for infections that are caused by enterococci. So uh, one prime example of that that definitely um, I have seen led to some confusion is endocarditis. So there are, um, in some patient cases, it's recommended to give a drug like ampicillin in combination with ceftriaxone for enterococcal endocarditis, and you're not going to see uh, ceftriaxone or any cephalosporin on your susceptibility report. And I've, you know, been part of teams that have tried to call the micro lab to say, hey, could could we get uh, ceftriaxone released on this isolate? And, and the answer is no. And so now, you know, I think that's uh, a, a still a common confusion point. Okay. Um, and then this one is, is very, uh, one that I have encountered a lot, and I'm sure that uh, other techs working in the lab have as well. So you get a request, right, for a, for a drug, and then you don't have it, let's say. Um, so for the, for the beta lactams, you know, can we, and this is in the CLSI as well, so we can predict the susceptibility of a drug based on another. So uh, what can you tell us? How does this apply to the beta-lactams? What drugs can we use one to give interpretation to another? So I think, yeah, it, it's frustrating, right? Because only sometimes can you, there are situations where it is appropriate and there are situations where it, where it isn't. I'd, I'd be curious to hear from your all experience what you found the most common one to be. Um, for me, the most common time uh, we got this question as a stewardship team was looking to discharge patients or um, send patients home from the emergency department when they were diagnosed with a urinary tract infection and they would have um, an uncomplicated urinary tract infection, something with like an E. coli or a Klebsiella pneumonia and wondering, well, where are all my oral cephalosporins? And they would try to use something like ceftriaxone to predict whether or not they could use one of those drugs. And we would often direct them to section or table 2A in the M100, where it talks about the enterobacterialis and 
in the oral cephems, how it points out um, for like your, the urine cephazolin breakpoint, in fact, is the surrogate for almost for, for, for most of your oral cephalosporins that you're going to use for uncomplicated UTI. So I think that was the most common one that, that we saw. That was the same for us as well. We would get a lot of, uh, we didn't routinely release MICs for cephalexin or keflex. And so we would get a lot of questions about like, well, you didn't give me that. So what else could we use? And can you assume X from Y uh, kind of thing, mostly for people that were getting discharged for uh, with some sort of like urinary isolate. And I think, I don't know, I would just add to everything Brian's saying here. I think for the, the laboratorians listening to this, we can't really emphasize enough how helpful the CLSIM 100 is, right? Like, I think you forget sometimes, and you meaning the universal you, the universal we, uh, forget to reference this M100 document uh, when questions come from clinicians, because we've got other SOPs and things to reference. And uh, CLSI M100 can feel really like clinically heavy sometimes. And so maybe I think, at least in my experience, um, my laboratory colleagues sometimes felt like maybe it was out of their realm of things they needed to reference, but so many good uh, resources in there and uh, all sorts of commentary around um, little rules like this. You know, when can you assume one drug is susceptible if another one is? Uh, what are the generations? What's the intrinsic resistance you should know? All laid out in very nice tables, really easily accessible. Um, and then within each, you know, like organism section where you have your uh, breakpoints for um, all your susceptibility testing at the at the start of each of those sections, they'll have all sorts of comments um, with respect to different uh, drug combinations for that organism in that section. And they'll make commentary around like, hey, here are some things to know about uh, coagnate staff, you know, when you're running these different drugs, here are some key things to know, like at the introduction of that section too. So I would just recommend, you know, making sure you reference that document and it certainly at least helped me a ton in answering questions from my clinician uh, colleagues. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, definitely. And, and I have said this before on many episodes, maybe when you're working in the lab, you're familiar, you see the one binder and, and you, know, you can access it online. So as you're sitting on your computer, you can just uh, put it on your favorites and just as simple as free CLSI 100. And it's right there and you can just have it from your computer. So you just have it there, you know, opening your email and your other things. And as you're working and you have that question, just go ahead and reference it. And definitely, you know, you know, it's a lot of information, like we have said before. So sometimes, you know, having all this in your brain, it's it's a lot. So at least, you know, it's there and, and you reference it. And overall, when, you know, we do a lot of automated susceptibility testing, and sometimes, you know, with your LIS, those all those rules and intrinsic resistance and all that, it's built in there. But you might be in situations where sometimes you're, you're manually entering something. And so it's definitely good to know what the resources are. And it's so much information and it's very important and it helps you to do your job uh, well. Um, I think, you know, it's, this has definitely been, been great. Is, is there anything else that either of you want to add? The, the last thing I, I'd like to say... Um, in addition to another thank you is, so the advice that I give to pharmacists who are earlier in their career to me when we're talking about stewardship programs and and things like that and, and the world of infectious diseases, my recommendation to them is to get involved with their lab. So to actually go and, and meet the people who are doing the tests, understand their workflows, 
don't be annoying to them, but first understand how you could be a resource to them and then how you can integrate their workflow into your own so that you can synergistically take better care of your patients. Um, I think understanding that and developing that relationship is critical to developing a successful antimicrobial stewardship program. This is funny. I, Brian, I love that. I was actually going to say pretty much the exact same thing, but just complete opposite. So obviously not the exact same thing. It's going to mirror what you were going to say. I always used to say to the medical laboratory scientists that I was training or working with that I can't encourage enough uh, building up your knowledge base with some of this clinical knowledge for multiple reasons. Uh, I think having the ability to really communicate with your clinical colleagues is an exceptional skill set that you'll take with you everywhere in your career, whether you're still working at the bench or you move into another position. Uh, it's a very unique skill set to have, uh, and it's very, very good for patient care, but also great for your career and the things you might find yourself doing down the road. Additionally, uh, you know, you have technical knowledge that clinicians or, 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 you know, clinicians of all kinds. So infectious disease, PharmDs, uh, doctors, PAs, NPs, all sorts of providers, they may not have received this training uh, for any reason in, in their training. And so you have a subspecialty or a technical expertise that they may not have received. And so you bring a lot to the table, but understanding what the clinician needs and why they need it really helps you do your job. So I think it helps tie together complex concepts when you understand why it matters that we do what we do in the lab and how that translates to a patient. So in everything you do, if you can try to you know, bridge that gap, it's becoming a really popular term, bridging the gap. But really, if you can bridge the gap between the technical work that you do and how a clinician uses that information to treat a patient, you'll remember things uh, a little more readily. Uh, they will continue to remind you of the impact that you have on patient care. And it, overall, I think it'll just help things stick. In addition to just being able to work with really wonderful people who you'll learn a lot from and who you also will teach a lot of things to. I just can't recommend enough um, really trying to work well with your clinical colleagues and make that relationship strong. Yeah, I like that. And uh, yeah, sometimes, like, like I mentioned at the beginning, we don't see a lot of people outside of the lab. And sometimes, you know, it might, you know, we definitely, and everyone's busy and I understand that. And we're, working with many cultures and, and things and trying to put out results. And sometimes, you know, the impression might be, oh, you know, we only get the calls when something is wrong. And so it's definitely nice to, you know, meet people outside of the lab and, and with the resources, you know, it's, it's a great era where we have, you know, we have with social media, so many great microbiologists, you know, pharmacists, ID docs, you know, putting information out there and very friendly that I have, you know, found out. So, if you just, you know, build your knowledge, you know, know where your resources are, get familiar with them. And it's just, it's, it's definitely going to help you do a better job and feel more comfortable. That's what like I can say, you know, about doing this, that's the recipe. And I said it over and over again, you know, it's repetition and arming yourself with the knowledge where the resources are. And if you get stuck, know who to ask, but, um, I think that's, that's all I have to say. Um, you know, thank you. Uh, you know, as always, you know, Andrea, you know, it's always great doing this with you. And Brian, you know, has been great having you. You're definitely uh, welcome to come back again when if you have any other topic or if you want to participate in this series. You know, it's it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been a, a great time.
My pleasure. So there you have it, uh, audience. So for now, we conclude the second episode of the AMR sub-series about the data lactams. If you haven't checked the first one, please go ahead and do so. AMR, an overview, available anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about beta-lactams. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. So please, you know, stay tuned. The sub-series will continue going um, over the course of the podcast. So tune in. You know, maybe we're going to try to release episodes maybe once a month when it comes to the sub-series. For the rest of the podcast, I will always publish weekly. And if that changes, I will let you know. So please continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. So as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, Brian, continue talking micro. Continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.